Welcome to Croxley Green Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We're going we're gonna to dig in a little bit deeper into that passage that we had. And uh, let me start by getting you to think about places you may have been in the world. Uh, think of some of the most iconic buildings that you've ever experienced. Uh, perhaps buildings that you've admired for their architecture or um, just they've got a nice feel to them or they're beautiful. Um, some some ones you may mention, perhaps uh, the Eiffel Tower, maybe Blackpool Tower. I went to Blackpool Tower when I was a kid and loved it. Um, the Hoover Dam, I visited that once when I was in Las Vegas and uh, flew over to, we, we went in a helicopter near there and it was amazing, what an experience. And the Hoover Dam was quite, quite something. The Sydney Opera House, I've never seen that in the flesh, but that is really quite a beautiful building. And um, what about Croxley Baptist Church? Look at it. It's a really nice space you've got here. I don't know, maybe it's possible to take it for granted, but I was just, we were just chatting before how, like, bare brick is really trendy. It's really in. <laughs> and I think you guys are, like, way ahead of the curve with that. So it's, it's just a very uh, great building. What is the, what do what all these buildings have in common? All of these different buildings scattered around the world, these works of architecture. Well, um, here's one thing they have in common. They didn't just appear. It wasn't like someone was like walking out, walking their dog on a field in Croxley Green one day and then ping, suddenly he walks into a wall and says, oh, there's a church there. Obviously, there's, there's a period, isn't there, between when there's nothing and then when there's something. There's this period in between. At some point in your history, I don't know your history, I'm sure some of you will, at some point someone either walked past this place or drove past it or came in a horse and car, whenever it was, actually, it wasn't that long, long ago, I'm sure. Someone came and saw the space that was here and had an idea. They went, you know what? I see something there that isn't there now. They had what you might call, if you want to have a religious term, a vision. But they had, they had, a, had a picture of what could be here. And so they went away and I'm sure they collaborated with other people, and maybe as a team, they went through the hardship, the challenges of making that happen. But the thing is, that picture they had, that vision they had in their mind, became a reality. And we are sat in it now. Without that, it would never have happened. And just think about whatever their, whoever these people were, their vision and their picture is still changing lives to this day, and will probably keep on changing lives. That's the thing about visions, you see. Uh, when you're in your life, you can look at something and you can say, you know what, I, I, this is how things are. And maybe even they look like a wasteland, who knows. But in your mind, you go, oh, but I can, I can just picture, I can imagine something different. And then gradually, with faith, you step out and hopefully you start to see that picture become real. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about what are the visions or the pictures that you have for your life. Now, it might not be a building. Who knows? Maybe it is. Maybe you want to renovate your house or something. You want to build a new church. Who knows? But maybe this is more of a metaphor for some of you. Is Is there something in your life you would like to see different? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's somebody you know who you would say, you know what, my relationship with that person or those people is like this. Maybe it's like a wasteland. And I picture, I can imagine it being like that. 
Or maybe it's uh, in your work life or in where you volunteer or it's in your health. Or, um, or maybe, maybe you've got some sort of burning vision inside of you that you said, I've always loved, I could always picture myself doing X, let's say. But I've never had the bottle to step out and do it. But I think it's a vision. Well, I want to talk to you about those this morning. Because I believe they don't come to you by accident. That God is in the business of giving you pictures of things that could happen. And that if you step out, those things can become reality. And that can be scary and that can, can be hard. But that happens for people throughout the Christian world, but also within the Bible itself. And I want to look at this guy called Nehemiah. I, I went to a sermon once where the, bloke, the preacher pronounced him as Nehemiah. And I thought, oh, that, sound, that kind of sounds more authentic. But I tried, to, I tried to say Nehemiah when I was going through this before, and it just sounded weird. So uh, Nehemiah is how I have known his name. And Nehemiah, let me just give you a background of his story. He has been put into captivity, into exile, uh, him and his people. But now, in the beginning of Nehemiah, uh, his people uh, are, are finally going back to their homeland going back to Jerusalem. But when they get back there, it's a nightmare because the walls of the city are all, all, all destroyed. They're knocked down. Can you imagine if you got taken away from your house for, say, five years or 20 years or whatever, and you were like, you can finally go home. And you were driving down the, the road to see it, and you're all excited that you were finally home, and then you went, hang on, where's the roof? <laughs> where's the, half of it is missing. How amazing it would be to be home, but how frustrating that it wasn't a safe home, that it wasn't the home you knew. And so uh, Nehemiah is in this awful position where people are starting to go home, but he realizes it's not, it, things need sorting out desperately. The, the, the place is not safe from outside uh, attackers or anything. And so in chapter one, if I, if, if I was doing a series, I would have looked at chapter one last week, but I wanted to come in in chapter two for this week. But in chapter one, we find that he is... He finds out about this and he weeps with sorrow. He is gutted that his homeland is in this state. And so he gets this vision. He says, you know what? Everything is knocked down, but I see something different. I see those walls built up again. I'm not just going to succumb and go, oh, I guess that's what it's like. He wants to build the walls. And he does. He sees the vision become a reality. And I want to look at um, some tips from Nehemiah, which will help us, I hope, to see our visions also become a reality, maybe a vision for your own life, but maybe a collective vision for the church, who knows. And the first thing to say is when it comes to trying to see a vision happen, one of the first things you can learn from Nehemiah is this, be honest, be honest. Facial expressions do matter, don't they? I mean, I don't know if you've, uh, You've had that experience where someone's just looked at you just in a certain way. It could be the tiniest narrowing of the eyes. You can think, oh, what's this problem? <laughs> like, what's, what have I done wrong? Like, you might be put on a, on a downer for the rest of the day because someone did this to you. And obviously, you can work the opposite way. Maybe you've met, so you're, you're feeling down or whatever, or sad, and you walk past someone, and they give you this big, brooming smile. Sometimes it can even work the opposite way. You smile, you're, you're sad. Someone gives you a smile and that makes you feel even worse. Someone on the till at the supermarkets, how are you doing? Having a nice day? <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> that our faces have, have power. Um, and the, 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 our facial expressions can affect other people, uh, maybe more than we possibly realize. Well, this is what's interesting about this because the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the destiny of, of Nehemiah's vision 
hinges on a facial expression. This is what changes everything. It's what his face looks like, or rather, what he allows his face to look like. At the start of our passage, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Um, if you're not sure what that is, basically he would kind of check that the king's food and wine wasn't only good, but also that it wasn't poisoned. I remember my dad used to do this when I was a little kid. I vividly remember this. If I ever had a chocolate bar or, or like a slice of cake, he'd like lean over with his fork and he'd go, oh, I just need to check if that's uh, poison, Peter. And he'd go, it's fine, go for it. At a time, I'd think, thanks, dad, that's really helpful. <laughs> Obviously, now I know his ways. Now I do that with my kid. But um, <laughs> what he was doing, he really... What Nehemiah was doing was a serious thing. People might want to poison the king, of course, so he had to make sure that it wasn't. Um, and so he's doing his cupbearing job, right? He's in the midst of it. When the king spots something, his facial expression, he's, the king says, why does your face look so sad? Now, this is interesting. Because if you were to look at verse 1, you find out it's, this is the month of Nisan. Right, it's not the month of Skoda or Peugeot. This is Nissan, right? And the last chapter, the bit you know when I told you about when he's crying over the broken walls of Jerusalem, the last chapter happens in the month of Kislev. So if you know anything about the kind of ancient calendar, you'll know that uh, when Nehemiah wept over the broken walls of Jerusalem, four months have passed since he knew this. So for four months, he's had the bad news. For four months, he's been sad, heartbroken, at what's happened to his homeland. And yet, in verse 1, in a passage we've had read, it says, I had not been sad in his presence before. So he has been sad. He's been gutted, and he's been crying. And yet, he's put himself into professional mode when he goes to, to, goes to, uh, to see the king, when he goes to work. Maybe he's been putting on a brave face all these months, uh, because sometimes that feels like the right thing to do. Are you doing that? Have you been putting a brave face on about something? Maybe something happened to you four months ago. And when you're at home, you cry about it. But when you come here or you come somewhere else, you, you put on the face. I don't know. The face. Everything's fine. <laughs> um, maybe something happened to you a long time ago. And you've been putting on a brave face for decades. Well, we do this, don't we? And in a way... It's natural to do that. It would be kind of strange if everyone was breaking down with one another and like gushing out their problems to the postman, you know, or anyone you met. However, sometimes the way for, your, for God to do something in your life comes with honesty, with vulnerability, with the ability to look weak in front of other people. Nehemiah could have easily fobbed this off. When the king looked at him and he sees his facial expression, I think maybe the emotions for Nehemiah were getting so much. He was bottling it in for four months straight, and then he just went in there and he, maybe he couldn't help it. Or maybe he strategically decided, today's the day, I'm going to let it out. I don't know. But for whatever reason, the king spots it. And he could, I suppose, have said, if he, was, if he wanted to play it down, he could have said, oh, I'm just tired, you know. <laughs> I just, I just got out the wrong side of the bed this morning, but no, he's honest. He says, uh, in response to the question, why are you so uh, sad? Why does your face look so sad? He says, why should my face not look so sad when the city where my ancestors are buried in lies in ruins? 
He has this moment of raw honesty with the king. And how does it go? How does, it, does it help him or does it hinder him? Does him appearing weak torpedo his vision? No. It's exactly his weakness that opens the door for it to happen. You know, honesty matters, you know. I think most of us in church know that. I think most of us know that it's not the done thing to go around like barefaced lying to everybody. We've kind of worked that one out. But there's a more subtle dishonesty that could creep into the Christian life, which is pretending we're something we're not. Sometimes it can happen from the pulpit a lot. Um, you know, you can go to a church, you have this feeling, God, the person who's speaking at the front here has never done anything wrong in their life. You know, they're like, perfect. Well, believe me, every single person who's ever stood in this pulpit has been weak and has had negatives and has had challenges. I know I certainly have. I am not the greatest person on earth by any stretch. I've failed so often. And I struggle and I have challenges. And I don't necessarily go around gushing them out to everybody, but I make sure that there are places in which I can say, I'm, I'm sad. I can't do this. Maybe in the face of a vision that seems like such a mountain, Sometimes it's okay to say, this is too much for me. You know, sometimes we get the idea that if we're going out into a vision and we want to see something change in our life, we might think that any venture you go out with with God, you have to have 100% faith and positivity. And when you hit the 100% faith and positivity, it kind of and it unlocks like the miracle doors and God's like, finally, you reached there. And then he starts to change things, actually. It's not how it works. Didn't it say that uh, you can move a mountain with faith as small as a mustard seed? Sometimes that small bit of faith that you have, which you hold alongside your fear and your trembling and your scaredness and think, I can't do this, it's too much. Those, the combination of vulnerability, honesty, and faith, even a small bit of faith can change the world. Certainly what happened here. Our weaknesses are, are part of our strength. The Apostle Paul knew this. Uh, he had a weakness, asked God to take it away, and then God says to him, my grace is enough for you, for my strength is made perfect, not in your strength, but in your weakness. Let's be more willing to admit that we are human beings and we mess up. And so that's the first idea, that he's, he's honest, he realizes that to be open and honest could actually open a door to great things, which it does. But the second thing is also, he's bold. He's, he's brave. He's not just honest, but he's bold and brave. Nehemiah is honest with the king. He's honest with us, the readers, by the way. Verse 2, he says, I was very much afraid. He didn't have to write that. He could have, been, he could have written this account and sort of put himself off as really quite impressive. Have you ever met those sorts of people who will say, like, I went into that meeting. And I just told them what was going to happen, and they did what I told me, what I told them, and it was done, because that's how you get stuff done. You know, maybe he could, he could have been like that, but he's not. He says, actually, oh, I was really quite scared. I was frightened. He's willing to be open about his, his being scared. Now, why was he afraid? What was so scary about this? What would be scary about admitting your sadness to a king? Well, I had a look around this, and in, in Esther 4, verse 2, there's this rule that was going on in the ancient world where um, people, who, people who were wearing sackcloth 
That was a symbol of mourning and sadness. They weren't allowed to come into the palace because if they did, they might put the royalty on a, bo- on, on a bummer, you know, on, on, a, on a downer and make them feel sad. And so they weren't allowed to go. So who knows, maybe Nehemiah was thinking, well, kings like to be entertained, you know, the kind of court jester, entertain me type thing. They don't want to be brought down. Or maybe he's just frightened because this was his big moment. Sometimes that's a scary bit, by the way, is when you want something to happen, you're praying for something to happen, and then suddenly you realize it's starting to happen. That could be scary. Um, Graham Norton, the, uh, the um, interviewer, the guy on, on, on TV, he does, has a show on Friday night, and I remember seeing an interview with him once about his career when he first started, and he said, the only thing scarier about never getting your big break is getting your big break. When suddenly you're given an opportunity which you've always wanted, it's terrifying. So who knows, maybe Nehemiah was scared. But whatever the reason, he's scared. However, he doesn't bottle it. He doesn't say it's too much. He actually acts surprisingly bold in the midst of his fear. Look at verse 5, he says, he starts making quite bold demands. Uh, Let me go back to the city. Verse 7, he says, can I have letters from the governors so I can get safe conduct? Verse 8, he says, can I have a bunch of timber to fix the gates to build me a house? He is so bold even in his fear. And guess what? This mixture of the mustard seed of faith, this kind of vulnerability and honesty and fear, is all wrapped up. That's the thing that starts moving the whole vision forward. Don't let fear stop you from reaching out for that which you can visualize in your head, the thing you want or hope for or feel is coming for your life. Whether it's a vision for your life or for the church or for your business or whatever. Is it scary? Yes. <laughs> but I guess put it this way. Would you like your life to be an adventure? And, don't, and, and by the way, I don't think adventures stop when you retire. <laughs> if you're thinking that, I think, you've, I think you, you've barked up the wrong tree. If you've still got a pulse, <laughs> That implies that you still have stuff to do, that God is still calling you into excitement and interesting things, things that will stretch you. And I guess my question is, would you like your life to be an adventure or would you like it to just be an existence? Well, if you want it to be an adventure, and, I, and, and that's, the, that's the thrilling way, I suppose, of living a life, um, it does get scary. I can attest that I've done things in my life which are scary. But I would say all the best adventures have got scary bits. Imagine going to see a film of an adventure, an adventure movie, and there's no peril. <laughs> You'd be like, wow, yeah, this, in this film, James Bond goes shopping. <laughs> and he gets his groceries and goes home. It's like, well, that's not much of an adventure. You, see, you know what I mean? So sometimes the fear actually is, is not to hold you back. Feel the fear and do it anyway is the famous phrase. So Nehemiah is honest and he is bold even though he's frightened. But the next thing he is, he's very tactful. A way of seeing his vision happen is tactful. Um, to be tactful, of course, is to be considerate of other people, to not cause undue offense, to take into account their personality. 
Um, and not everybody is tactful. You can particularly see that on social media. I've got a YouTube channel, and once I put a video up on YouTube of me talking about something, and someone under, un, underneath just wrote something like, you're an idiot, or <laughs> something like really, really sort of blatant. Um, it made me chuckle, but then I thought, oh, hang on, that's, that could be a bit harsh. You could take that to heart. And there's, there's a lot worse things uh, that go on on social media, but maybe you've been on the receiving end of a lack of tact. Let's be honest, maybe you have also through your lack of tact, hurt other people. So tact is important. It's something to do uh, with how we act with other people. And so when the king says, why are you so sad to Nehemiah, he could have easily said, if he didn't have tact, he could have said, why do you think I'm sad? <laughs> you kept me in captivity. Uh. You know, he, he could have like just totally let his anger at four months of sadness and more from the captivity side of things. But did you see what he says? He goes, he responds to the king. He says, may the king live forever. <laughs> it's like, ooh, he's clever. He's not daft. He knows that sometimes you do have to schmooze with someone. He says, may the king live forever. And then he describes the problem that he has being that the city where his ancestors are buried, also where my fathers are buried, it's no mistake, you know, he says this, because when you look at the ancient world, they really, particularly royalty, they put a great deal of um, importance on ancestral reverence. And so him, he doesn't just say, oh, my hometown's a bit messed up. He says, the, the place where my ancestors are buried, my fathers are buried, and the king's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's actually quite bad. This is a bigger issue. So he's clever. He uses tact. And this is where um, you, get, you start to realize there's a connection between the word tact and the word tactics, it's from a Latin word uh, that means to touch. Uh, it's where we get the word tactile from. If you say someone's tactile, you know, very touchy-feely. Nehemiah had the right touch with people. He chooses, he chooses his words carefully. And he knows that a lack of tact could ruin his vision. I'd say to you um, that, well, I don't know what the, the visions are for your life, but be tactful in how you see them happen and how you step into them. Uh, for example, what is the vision of this church? I mean, I don't, don't want to presume, but I assume it's kind of reaching the community, you know, sharing faith at the classics. That's great. Um, but if you do that without a lack, with a lack of tact, if you do that with, with absolutely zero interest in the personalities of the people around you, you're gonna, it's not going to work. There was a time, perhaps, where you could stand on a street corner and, uh, you know, repent, hear ye, hear ye, <laughs> you're all going down in flames and all that. There was a time that maybe that worked, but it's not really going to work now. Um, we need a great deal of tact and respect for other people's views. Um, I know a place, uh, I remember somewhere where the, someone lived in a church where there was a mosque in the same town. And the imam from the mosque said to the people of the church, would you like to learn about what Islam's like? Because, you know, try to encourage us to learn a bit more about each other's religion. Would you, you know, come, we'll put some food on, ask us questions. It's the sort of thing kids do all the time, by the way. My kids at school, they're always going and learning about new religions just to, for the knowledge of it, you know, good relations. Um, and the church leaders were like, well, not doing that. Why would you do that? That's like wrong, that's shocking, that's dangerous or whatever. It says, no way, refuse, refuse to do that. But what we'll do instead, let's invite them to our church and we'll put on a meal 
And we'll tell them about what Christy, can you see how like, like uh, that, that lack of tact just ruined that whole opportunity, you know, of just sharing and getting to know each other. So tact is important. Um, and tact is about respect. It's about caring about how the other person feels. And so uh, be tactful. Nehemiah was tactful. And um, the next thing to say is to be prayerful and practical. This is what Nehemiah certainly does. Um, he has been prepared these last four months. You see this. His prayers are very detailed and specific. This is the, this is the kind of spintingly verse where it says in chapter 1, the, the exact prayer he prayed was this. He wasn't praying, build the walls. He wasn't praying this. His prayer was mainly, grant me favor in the presence of this man. Very specific prayer. And that's precisely what comes true in chapter 2. And so when the king asks what, he, what he's sad for and what he wants. Nehemiah is ready with the answer. He's not vague. He's specific. He sets a time frame for completing the walls in verse 6. We don't know, by the way, what the estimate was that he gives for how long it would take to build these walls, to rebuild them, how long it would take to complete. But Nehemiah actually ends up working on this job for 12 years, right? This building project for 12 years. So I guess like any builder, his estimate was probably way off reality. And then he asks for specific letters um, from specific governors. We notice that he, he's already found out which forest is nearest to Jerusalem, who's in charge of it. He's done his homework. He's prayed for months, but he's also thought about the practicalities for months as well. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that when you're in this position, you're doing the holy bit, and when you're in this position with the pen, <laughs> or that you're doing the the secular bits, or, the, the, or, or you know, I've, I've seen places when you go to a church meeting, let's say, and it's like, well, you know, oh dear, we haven't prayed, we have to get prayer in, because talking about the business side of things is not holy, um, so we've got to have half of the thing. Things are much more bundled up together, prayer and practicality. You know, when Paul says to us that we should pray, con pray constantly, you know, honestly, think that means that we need to be on our knees every single step of the day, of course not. Prayer is threaded throughout our life. It's vital. But prayer becomes practicality as well. Um, it's all bundled together. And so for, for um, Nehemiah, he was praying. He was on his knees. And that's vital. But he also threaded in, which was also vital, the research. The, the, it was all part of it. And that meant when he had the opportunity, he knew exactly what to ask for. When it comes to serving God here, um, or for what you want to step out to do, uh, be prayerful, absolutely. Be honest and bold and tactful, but also be wise. Plan, research, find out the things that would work, things that wouldn't work. Nehemiah did these things, and what he did when he thought about these things, he found help coming from very unexpected places. I suppose Nehemiah could have said, well, I want to see the walls rebuilt, but there's no way I'm going to work with a pagan king. That feels wrong, he might have said. We shall only join forces with those with the same ideas as us. God will rebuild the walls. He won't do it through the heathen. I remember being in a church once, and um, a couple, this was, this was decades ago, a couple, her daughter was very ill. And they refused to take the daughter to the doctors. Because they said, we refuse to let man, they use that word, man, heal her. God must heal her. And I just remember thinking, wow, you've got such a 
a black and white view of the world. You know, like everything is just about what happens in church is holy and what happens outside of church isn't. When you watch songs of praise, that's holy. When you watch Strictly Come Dancing, that's secular. It's like, you know, God, God, God is threaded throughout the world and working in ways we might not expect through doctors, through nurses in their case, but also in this case, they were pagan king. If they hadn't got this guy on board, if, if Nehemiah hadn't responded in the way he did, this wouldn't have happened. His, his, his grand vision, as wonderful as it is, would have been torpedoed from the start. But he recognizes that sometimes God works in mysterious ways through mysterious people. <laughs> That's okay. We don't have to be freaked out by that. In fact, we should rejoice, I think, to realize there's more help than we think. It's not just us. There's a whole world out there where God can use. So the last thing to say as well as I wrap up is to say to be reliant on God through the midst of it all. Let's be honest. Nehemiah did a pretty amazing job here, really quite spectacular. He cast a vision to rebuild the wall to a pagan king. He did it in an honest, bold, tactful, prayerful, practical way. But did he succeed in all of this because he was so skillful, because he was a bit of a Bible hero? Well, Verse 8 gives the real reason why this works. It says, the gracious hand of the Lord was on me. That's why it worked. Because God was maneuvering and moving and was in the midst of all of this. God gave him this vision in the first place. And he wasn't going to just sit back and let Nehemiah build it on his own. And the visions that you have, the ideas that you have in your head. And by the way, if you don't have a vision, ask God for one. These things aren't just there to say, God's not like, right, yes, I want you to do that. Head off and do that. Get back to me when it's done. <laughs> it's not how it works. He's like, this is what my vision is. And I'm inviting you into it, into this adventure. Because you're perfect for this. You're the one that's fixed up for this. And he was with Nehemiah every step of the way. I wonder if some of you need a reminder that the work you're doing in the world for God or, or, or whatever, you're not doing by yourself. You're not alone. That God's hand is on your shoulder every day, every moment, even when you sleep. That he's the light, the light and the storm. Have you ever been low and someone's come along and just put their hand on, on your forearm or something, on your shoulder, and what that can mean? I remember this vividly. When I was a kid, I was a little kid, and my, um, my nana died, and I remember that my mom had said to me, well, you're, you're a bit too young to go to the graveside funeral, for whatever reason, she felt it would be too much for a little kid, so I was like, okay. And so I really remember I was, they dressed me in a, I'd never been in a suit before, this was very unusual, so I was a kid dressed up, smart. We went in a hearse, and every, everyone left the hearse and got out, and they went to the, the graveside, it was raining that day. And I can remember vividly looking out of the glass and all the kind of rivulets of rain were coming down the glass. And so everything was kind of a strange blur, but I could see these sort of black figures, these shapes gathered around. And I kind of was like, oh, I, I know what's going on, but I don't fully get my head around this. This is so strange. And anyway, they all got back into the car and obviously they're very upset. And then we drove back to my Nana's house where we had the reception. And they had a buffet. And I remember sitting in my Nana's lounge. And she, uh, so the rest of my family, I was going to say she wasn't there. Obviously, she wasn't there. <laughs> um, but my, the rest of my family weren't in that part of the house at that time. 
they were somewhere else. So I was surrounded by strangers, really, felt like, dressed in a suit, baffled and confused. And then I started to feel this sense of emotion coming and this feeling of, oh, people die. And not only do people die, people like that I like and love die. And then looking around, I was thinking, someone I love has died. And it started to sink in. I'm in the house where she was always at, and she won't be in this house anymore. And I can remember feeling that emotion starting to come up in me, and that feeling of maybe like Nehemiah did for four months, saying, keep it down, keep it down. No, no, don't do that. It's be so embarrassing. But like he got to the stage, I thought, nah, I can't, I can't. And I remember I started crying, sitting in this kind of corner on my own, thinking, oh, this is, this is horrible. And I just remember someone put a hand on my shoulder. And not only did they put a hand on my shoulder, they kind of just, they didn't say a word, they just sort of brought me in and hugged me, said nothing. And I just remember thinking, wow, I wouldn't have known I had companions on the journey if I hadn't opened up, you know? Sometimes we can live our lives feeling that we don't have anyone supporting us. We don't have anyone there for us. And we feel isolated and lonely. And sometimes, you know, that might be simply because the people around us haven't, they're not psychic. They didn't realize we needed them. Sometimes it just takes that honesty and that sadness and openness to say, I need help. And I hope that this morning you'll be reminded that you have a companion. A companion who walks with you through it all. Nehemiah said the hand of God was on him at all times, you know, every step of the way. And he's with you too. I don't know what you're going through at the moment. Some of you might be going through all sorts of crazy stuff. There's a companion with you. Always, who listens and hears and shares the pain, but also will be there when the visions that you have become real in reality and can rejoice with you and high-five you and say, yes, you remember when we were down there and now we're here. I wonder how many tears were shed over building this. Ever thought about that? I wonder how many clashes or stresses or people having sleepless nights. But then the day came when these people were here and were sitting in the church they built, just quietly maybe in the corner or something going, it happened. Your visions, your visions can happen too. There was once an empty space where this building stood until someone came along with a vision, built something meaningful. As you build new things, be honest and be bold, be tactful, be prayerful, be practical, but above all else, be reliant on a loving companion, a God who walks with you in the valleys and on the mountaintops. Mm-hmm.